we are journeying through the book of Exodus, and there's a little map. I know there's some map people. Don't worry. There's some, there's some non-map people. So this is the only map you'll see tonight. But what you see, basically, is the people have started in the top left, left-hand corner, and although not precisely known where exactly they are on their most southern point of the journey so far. They're out of Egypt. They're not in the promised land. The rest of the book of Exodus, the whole of the book of Leviticus, and the start of the book of Numbers will all take place now at Sinai. They're going to be here for about a year. So this is a significant part of the journey of the people of God before they go into the promised land. And what happens in this chapter 19 of Exodus, which we're going to look at, has actually made its way into the English language. We still talk today of mountaintop experiences, mountaintop experiences. If I talk to you about a mountaintop experience, if you think of one now, what moment, what moment comes to your mind? If you look back in the rearview mirror of your life, what moments stand out as being mountaintop experiences? The world stayed the same, but you changed. And then when you came back into the world, it just couldn't, it couldn't stay the same because you weren't the same. I can remember, you know, that old house in Rondebosch having a, a moment in my bedroom, kind of feeling God's presence. I think of camps often in Elgin and other such places. These moments are given to us as a gift to kind of wake us up to what's happening. I love what Nikki Gumbel said about mountaintop experiences. He said, mountaintop experiences inspire you while valleys mature you. Mountaintop experiences inspire you while valleys mature you. I don't know how you feel about the last couple of years, but I'd say we've had quite a lot of opportunities for maturing, right? There have been quite a few valleys, but there's nothing wrong today to expect a mountaintop experience. To say, God, I, I want to see you. Because it's not actually about the mountain. It's about who you meet in that place. It's about who shapes you in that place. And so that's why we're going to have the bulk of our time of response in worship afterwards. Because we, we want to come before God as a community. We declare that, that that's why we gather. That's who we gather towards. And that's who we trust in. He's going to shape us as a community and inspire us. And I'm not talking about the kind of inspiration that runs out on the 2nd of January. You know, that kind of inspiration. I'm talking about that kind of change that, that you know fundamentally shifts you. Thinking about my own life, I, I did, uh, between my varsity holidays, a time in Lake Tahoe, a, late, a time in Dublin, came back to my studies. I was motivated like never before because I didn't want to be a waiter or a ski lift operator for the rest of my life. I was like, study hard, Morn. <laughs> like, you do not, you're not, you're not suited for that, that other kind of work. I had another mate who did a stint in the UK, he came back to um, our school, and he he actually went the opposite way. He was, he'd lost all motivation. He kind of went, man, I, I struggle to be back in this environment. I can't, I can't just go through the motions like I used to. And he felt such a level of frustration because, we, as I said, you, when you encounter something, you can't just slip back into old patterns. You either are alive to life or you, or you switch off to your circumstances. So we need to trust and experience on the mountain today, and let's, let's look at what the people of God experienced. To catch you up, they have now been drawn out of Egypt. If you look at that map, they are now at the, at the most southern point of their journey. They, they are out of slavery, oppression. They are far away. But interestingly enough, they're not in the promised land. Moses and, and God had said to them, we're taking you out of slavery. We're going to take you to the promised land. Have a look at that map. They are now further away from the promised land. They are in a desert. <laughs> at this point, they could be thinking, hmm, loved the freedom bit, not so sure about the lack of delivery on the promised land. We're further away than we were, and we are certainly not experiencing milk and, and honey. We are, we're in a desert. 
often when we approach God and we, when we understand God's ways, it's a little bit like this ourselves. We think our life is just going to be onwards and upwards, and yet he leads us in certain ways, in certain places that we're left going, is this a mistake? What, what have I been doing with my life? Is this poor leadership by God? Is this poor leadership by me? And what we learn in this experience is almost this, this visual aid of saying, no, 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 God is leading them. He's the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and he's the one that's taken them all the way down south there and is taking them to the mountain. And I don't think Moses would have been surprised. The people might have been surprised, but Moses isn't. Because remember, right in Exodus 3, we read this passage, verse 12. It'll appear on the screen now. God speaking to Moses says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. See, Moses had encountered a burning bush, and he'd had his life changed on a mountain. Now, God is leading a people to that exact same mountain, but instead of just one burning bush, you're going to have a mountain ablaze with the presence of God. He shaped one man in a burning bush. He's going to shape a whole nation as they have a mountaintop experience. So something else is happening now. This isn't someone who got his GPS coordinates wrong. This is a people being taken through valleys, being taken through deserts, being taken to that place of maturity. But it's not just valleys that have been sent to mature them. No, there is a mountaintop that they're going to get a view of who God is, and they're going to be inspired. Because the, it's not actually about the mountain. It's about the God that they meet there. So let's start reading. We're going to read a chapter slow down, read a chapter, slow down, and let's start reading our Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, the timing of that is it's basically 50 days. 50 days after the Passover, they arrive at the, at the wilderness, which is another word for desert. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's God's word for us. The this, this structure is really going really to unpack this start of the chapter, and it's as follows. It's, we're going to look at what the Lord has done. We're going to look at what the Lord requires. And finally, we're going to look at what the Lord promises. So let's, let's dive into this mountaintop experience, what the Lord has done. Notice how he's speaking to Moses. He's got a message for the people, and this is how the message begins. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice the incredible uh, image here of an eagle. We often get asked by kids, what's the fastest thing? And cheetah was fine for a while, but now they've done a bit more reading, and there's the thing called the peregrine falcon or the peregrine eagle, uh, um, well, falcon, but there's a bird, right, which can just hang out at the top, spot something, and swoop at the fastest speeds that anything can kind of move at. Uh, this is the image God uses for what he's done for his people. Remember how it all started? God arrests Moses' attention at the burning bush. He says, I have seen my people suffering. I've seen them under oppression for over 400 years. 
and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to swoop. Eagle, eyed, God sees everything, but he's not just a distant observer. He gets involved, and he swoops, and he grips, and he releases them from slavery. We once had a rabbit that got swooped on in our old house. We found out about the rabbit because it landed in our pool. It was a neighbor's house about three doors down. We heard the splash, went out, there was a rabbit in our pool. It had been gripped, brought into freedom, and then its ear had kind of ripped all the way, and it dropped into our pool. It was quite an exciting start to a day, and my parents are here in the front, so they can verify. This isn't just a spicy story. The rabbit doesn't do well in the end, so I'll stop the story there for sensitive viewers. But the bottom line is, the rabbit knew very little about what the bird was doing. It was just going, and suddenly it was a whole new world. And so you've got a people who God has seen, who God has swooped on, and who now God needs to shape, who God now needs to form. Because as we've said many times, they're out of Egypt, but Egypt isn't out of them. Notice why God's done it. He swoops on them so that they can be brought to him. He's not just into this freedom game and then figure out life. No, he's into this pursuit of relationship. He's saying, no, you, you've been in slavery, but I'm bringing you to myself. I'm bringing you close to me. I want you to have a mountaintop experience. I want you to encounter me. And it's very important we get the order right here. It's very important we get the order right. God rescues them. And then he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, which Leanne's going to speak about next week. It's grace before law. God doesn't rock up in Egypt and say, cool, here are the Ten Commandments. Depending on how you do, I'll set you free. If we get the order wrong here, we're we misunderstanding the God of the Bible. He's not the God who gives the rules and then brings the rescue. No, he swoops. He rescues. And then he brings the rules. And he brings the formation. And he brings that desire to, to have people transformed in his presence. Let's quickly have a look at the co contrast between what we read and what we're going to read next week in Exodus 20. When we start the Ten Commandments, where do we normally start? We normally start with this. You shall have no other gods before me, right? That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But what do we see just before that? How do the Ten Commandments actually start? They actually start th like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the eagle who swooped and who saved you, who rescued you, and now I'm shaping you and forming you. We have to get that order right. It's almost exactly what we say in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings, brought you to yourself. Grace precedes law. Encounter precedes becoming the example for all the other nations. See, the difference here is massive. You can go through life saying, I obey, I obey, I obey. Therefore, I must be loved. God must love me. Or you go through life saying, no, I'm loved. I'm loved, and therefore I obey. Both of these people will be following the Ten Commandments. From the outside, they will look very similar to each other. They'll be sitting here. We'll be here. All, all dialing into God's word. But one will be doing from a place of, I'm obeying so that God will love me. And the other will be saying, no, 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 I I'm loved, I'm rescued, I've been swooped upon, I've been brought into God's presence, and therefore I will obey. Why this group of people? Why these people that are at the, the foot of Mount Sinai? Exodus 4 gives the answer. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, God speaking through Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. 
God speaking, describing this people as those that are his sons, that they are the ones that have been adopted, that they have an inheritance before they've done a thing, and essentially that they have got a covenant status, they've got a promise given to them that they will be God's people and that he will be their God. And so you see this people, this firstborn son being brought, and they're going to go up a mountain, and they're going to have the law of God come upon them, and they're going to then be shaped to inherit the promised land. And, and reading through New Testament lens, we're going to see the, 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 the real firstborn son, Jesus Christ, ascending the hill of Calvary, coming under the law of God. And because of what he does on the cross and because of his resurrection power, we can now walk in expectation of the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth where God will be with us in undiminished glory. So you see that rhythm established. You are set free to possess the kingdom of God. You don't try and keep the rules before you are set free. No, no, no. The son sets you free so that you may serve him. You've been drawn out of slavery so you can be, be drawn into a life, the life to the full, life as originally intended, the life of Eden restored, homecoming followed by becoming uh, the people of God. So that's what God has done, and that is key. If you get the order wrong, we're in a lot of trouble. But what has the Lord now required? What has the Lord required? Let's read from verse 5. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all nations. All the earth is mine. If you're reading this, you might stop and say, Whoa, 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 Paul. This sounds very different. Haven't you just turned this whole thing on its head? You just told me about God's rescuing work, but now you're saying it appears to be conditional. It appears to depend on if we will obey God's voice and if we'll keep my covenant. But we mustn't lose those two words right at the beginning of verse 5. See them there. Now, therefore. Now, therefore. You see, it's connecting that there's a relationship that's already been established. There's a rescue that's already happened. There's a covenant status as sons and daughters of God that out of we respond with obedience. And how do we respond as rescued people? Well, we do two things. We listen to the voice of the Lord, the word of God, which is about to descend in the next chapter, as Lee will explain next week. The, the, the word of God is coming. But we don't just listen to that word. We obey that word. You see the difference. It's not just a case of knowing intellectually. No, it's, a, it's an obedience, the freedom of obedience, the, the freedom to be what we were always intended to be. And we don't just obey the voice. We keep the covenant. We keep the covenant. So what will the people do to, to what's been said here? We're going to quickly read uh, what happens from verse 7. It says, Moses came, called the elders of the people, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. I mean, they've just seen the rescue. They've seen the cloud. They've seen the pillar. And they're saying, we'll do it. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear what I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God's reminded them of rescue. He's told them they need to listen, obey, and keep the covenant. They don't even know yet what it is. They haven't heard yet, but they say, we're up for it. We will do it. And God says, okay, I'm coming. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. And you will listen to me. And I will speak to Moses and he will speak to you. I am coming. So now there's some messaging back and forth. Let's pick up the story. Moses, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, 
Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around. So they've come to the mountain. They've expressed a willingness to hear from God. And God says, I am coming. But when I'm coming, you need to prepare. Because this mountaintop experience is going to be like nothing else you've ever experienced. Speaking as people today in the suburb of Sea Point, it kind of is quite jarring to see how important it is for us to prepare before coming into the presence of God. It's kind of, it's kind of a, an interesting thing to read about something like consecration, which is a word that captures this preparation period. Consecration, saying, whoa, 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 pause all the usual elements of life and recognize that something significant is about to happen here on the mountain. God's presence is coming. For three days, there's a, there's, a, there's a time, there's a limit to what, what needs to happen. It's a three-day time period, and there's a, there's a trumpet that's going to blow, and so you need, to, you need to fit your life around what's happening here, not expect God to fit around your life. But it's not just limits of time, there's also limits of space. If you read on, we don't have time for it, you'll see that God clearly demarcates certain areas and says, you must not come beyond this point, otherwise you will die. If you touch this part of the mountain, you will die, and you kind of go, whoa, what is happening here? There is something larger than we've ever experienced happening here. This is holy ground. See, when Moses first came to this mountain, he had a burning bush experience. God said, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. This is, this is something from another category. This is a separate kind of experience. You need to prepare for it. You need to be aware of it. And now as the people of God come, it's the exact same thing. Except instead of a burning bush, we're going to have a burning mountain. And it's an awesome scene. It's an absolutely awesome scene. God coming down to speak to his people. Commentators on this would say, essentially what's happening here is this mountain is no longer a mountain. It's about to become a throne because the creator God, the king of kings, is coming to be on his throne, to be with his people, to connect with his people. A consuming fire is on the way and everything that is unclean will be gone. It's hard for us to really understand this. Perhaps the best analogy I can give is, is what happens to a lot of students when I used to teach um, at uh, UCT on the CA program, or even now at the GSB, I, I managed to teach in the executive MBA program. And people that come on these programs are typically very accomplished people. They have made life work. On the executive MBA in particular, you have to pretty much be corporate, you're going for it. And you arrive, and you've kind of been told your whole life, you're the smartest in the class, you're the best, you're the most brilliant, life is going well. And these guys arrive, and suddenly there are people that are so far beyond them in terms of excellence and brilliance that you can just sit there like, oh, good heavens. My whole life, I've been the top dog. I might even be the CEO of my thing, but this person next to me is like 10x me in terms of the company, the experience. They've been studying. They've got more letters behind their name. And you can literally see someone not having an earthquake, but having a self-quake of like, oh, my goodness. There, who am I? How, how, how do I fit in? How does this work? Rising levels of anxiety on, on um, campuses around the world many causes of it, but one of them is this realization that I've come from a small town where I was the big fish in a little pond, and now all of a sudden, I'm experiencing a self-quake because of just some of the brilliant people that are around me. Now, if that can happen amongst human brilliance, imagine what happens when you encounter the creator God. 
Can you imagine the kind of self-quake that happens at that moment when you realize, good heavens, <laughs> I thought it was a pretty big deal, but now I see the creator of the universe, the universe descended. And, and a self-quake, I don't think it's even strong enough to describe what happens in that moment where he says, this is how it will work. This is who I am. And you now need to align with, with the truth of who he is. So that consecration period happens. Let's now read about what happens from verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So all those image bearers, all those made in God's image tremble. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. People trembling. The creation itself trembling. Those made in God's image trembling. Those made by God trembling. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered to him in thunder, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God comes on his throne. His authority is established. People suddenly realize, whoa, I used to be quite impressed by the other people around me. Now I've got a whole other category. The creation itself goes, this is the one who breathed us into being. This is the one who made us. It starts to tremble. And essentially from this moment onwards, the theme of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers becomes one of God with his people building his people. He changes them in this moment. This mountaintop experience, the coming down of God, the Ten Commandments, this is God giving rules, giving, giving a deep understanding of what it means to be human, changing them from the inside out. And then he helps them build a tabernacle, helps them build a place to encounter God. Because although the mountaintop is an experience, from then onwards, they are going to gather in his presence, in the tabernacle, to continue to be shaped by God and to, be, and to be brought into the fullness of what he has. From now on, they become God's people living God's shaped lives. And we don't have time to go along into it. Next week, I, I suspect we will be looking at the role of the Ten Commandments and what rules mean, because no one here is like, woo, sign me up for the rules. You know, culturally right now, you don't have a tattoo going, rules, rule, you know? Like, if anything, we're, we're into anarchy. Well, maybe that's a bit strong, but anti-institutionalism. We're into kind of being the rebel. Everyone's the rebel now, you know? It, that's just how it is. So what's the role of the rules? A simple way of thinking about it is this is God's way, having rescued them, he's now helping them become a nation that are alive to his original intent, a nation that understands what it means to be truly human. Remember, kings at that time would set up images of rock and, and stone and steel. God says, no, I'm not gonna make images out of those materials. I'm gonna make images out of you. You are made in my image. You are male, you're female, and I'm gonna put you on display so you can show the nations who I am. Maybe a way of thinking about it, uh, Michelle Peters, who... Um, is in charge of our lovely team of Kids Rock volunteers. She's recently got a post at Redham, and she's just taken over grade R class last week. Imagine being her and having two scenarios. Grade R class, no rules. They've just kind of run wild from January to September. Or grade R class that's been taught what it means to be polite and full of manners to one another, how life works. Which grade R class would you prefer? Which one would you just be like, woohoo, sign me up? I mean, we all kind of know, actually, at some level, sheesh, it is so much better 
when we're dealing with each other, to have an understanding of what it means to treat each other in the image of God, right? I mean, if it's just you and God, well, fine. But when you get others involved, my goodness, it is good to have an understanding of rules. And you know, the big point of all of this is not just so we can have rules, it's so that we can have relationship. The whole point of rescue and rules brought together so that we can have relationship with God. So we've seen what God's done. That was my longest point now, what God requires. And now let's, let's feast on what God has promised as, as we prepare to worship. See, God promises this. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all nations. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God secured our status as firstborn sons. He secured us in his family. And now he says, there's an inheritance for you. There's, there's a covenant enjoyment, which I'm calling to you. See, if you, if you listen to me, if you keep my commandments, there's, there's, there's a life to be lived here, which is full of joy, life in abundance. He, he calls us a treasured possession. Now, at that time, how much would a king have as possession? I mean, how much was the king's? Everything, everything was the king's, but yet there were some items that were treasured. There were some items that got, you know, into, into the bedside drawer, you know, the Father's Day cards and the <laughs> bits and bobs, you know, I don't, know what, I don't know what goes into your dad drawer, but, but that, that drawer which says, no, these are the treasured possessions. You know those things when you move in house, you're like, I can't get rid of, you know, maybe that's a bad analogy because you stick them in the drawer for like 20 years until you move again, right? But this is, this is the treasure that goes on the mantelpiece. This is the treasure which is kept close. It could have anything, but this is what it means to be treasured. And I want to pause here because if you've ever had a relationship where you have treasured someone, what have you instinctively done when you treasure them? You found out about them. You found out their likes, their dislikes. Essentially, although you wouldn't use this language, you've tried to find out their will. You've tried to find out what are the rules that they, that they, that make them come alive, the experiences. And then what do you do? You try to give them their favorite meal, their favorite song. You try to love them in the love language they like. You wouldn't use the language, but essentially you're submitting yourself to their rules and their way of doing it. Are you doing that so that they'll love you? No, you're doing that because you love them and you want to then give love. You have this incredible relationship of being loved and then finding out about them so that you can love them. And then, and then you keep going. You see, it's so important to understand this, that God loves us. And in response, we say, oh, God, what are you like? How have you made us? Oh, we want to respond to you in that way. And then, and then we understand that not only are you our treasure, but you treasure us. And life then lived in an upward spiral of being with God. We're described as kingdom priests. We're described as a holy nation. This might seem a little bit hard. You might go, Paul, this is inspiring. Sure, mountaintop experience, sure. But in the, in the trenches of life, in the valleys of COVID, I've learned, quite frankly, it's a little bit easier to just lower my expectations. You know the key to life? Lower your expectations. <laughs> Expect nothing from anyone. It actually just protects my heart. It just is, it's just more helpful. Don't come and inspire me because I'm just going to get let down again. I'm going to control the controllables. You know, and everything else in life, well, you know, good luck. But we need, to, we need to study this experience very closely, you see, because 50 days after Passover is when they have this mountaintop experience. Do you know that the, our mates down at the shore, they still celebrate this moment that we're having now. It's called Shavuot. I'm mispronouncing it probably, Leanne. But on that celebration, the Ten Commandments are read out. 
the book of Ruth is read late into the night, and people celebrate 50 days after release from Egypt. Jesus arrives. He's died at Passover, which we now call Easter. 50 days later, he's promised his disciples, there will be a helper coming. I will no longer be with you, but my helper is coming. The Holy Spirit's coming. And he says to his disciples, go to an upper room, climb a mountain, and wait. And what happens is that the Spirit of God descends, and a little fire is put on every head. The room trembles. Fifty days after Passover, we experience Pentecost. We experience God's presence with us, and suddenly it starts to make sense. Our relationship with the law, which has been quite complex. Paul, is the law above me, kind of beating me up the whole time? There's no ways I can keep the Ten Commandments. I try, but I just can't. And then I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm like, good heavens, that's even harder. Like, like the law is above me, just beating me. I, I would rather have the law behind me, just have the law behind me. Just say, no, Jesus has handled the whole. It's all gone. It doesn't matter anymore. It's Jesus, woohoo! And I don't want to pay any attention to how I treat other people. I want the law behind me. And Jesus comes and says, no, it's not above you. It's not behind you. It's within you. I've come, my spirit has come into your life and you will now live as an image bearer in alignment with my power. And that's why Peter, who experienced the Holy Spirit, who then spoke, we saw the birth of the church, 3,000 added to them, as Kyle spoke about absolute chaos from a logistics point of view. Peter writes this. He was the one who first preached after that moment. Years later, he pens to Peter, verse nine, let's read it. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. I'd say a people for his own treasured possession. He's quoting Exodus 19 here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He swooped on you. He swooped on you. You did nothing. He took you from darkness to light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Covenant status, rescued, rescued, rescued. How do we respond? Peter tells us, beloved, you're loved. God loves you, beloved. I've sent my only son for you. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How realistic is that? That's exactly life. It's this war at our soul level. It's a battle. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? We've got an opportunity now to come before this God who has seen us, who swooped on us, and who longs for us to encounter him. Mountaintop experiences inspire us. Valleys mature us. We've had enough of valleys. Today is about the mountaintop. We want to grab the gap to meet with God this morning. Come to the mountain and meet with God. If you've up until now been confused around rescue, you thought rescue was dependent on what you did, how well you did on the rules. You didn't understand that, actually, no, it's, it's God's rescue work. Come to the mountain to enjoy covenant status. Accept Jesus as your homecoming invitation to be in God's presence. And perhaps you know what it's like to be on the mountain to meet with God, but you haven't for a long time. The valleys have distracted you from the God who's present, from the God who longs to pour out His Spirit on you. That, those early disciples, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, needed to be reminded that they were going to do everything in His power, not in their own. So God, we come to you now. We want to respond with these songs of worship. You came on that mountain 
as the king on his throne. And God, we declare that you are the king on the throne of our lives. You're the head of this community. Some of us bowing our knees for the first time, others of us freshly again acknowledging you're the king on his throne. We don't expect you to orbit around us. We bow before you and we place you at the center. Come by your spirit now and be glorified.